Ryan, Tony, and Crystal. We can't guarantee that you're gonna look great, but if you wanna stay in shape, well, you better hit the chinwits, chinwits. That's right, man. Welcome to the Jimwits Podcast. I'm Ryan George. I'm Justin Guild, aka Chef Sonic. And we are the Jimwits. So, so we got a, a less than a week to go until the election. Have you voted yet? Uh, no, I have to send in my, uh, I have to, I have to send in my ballot. Right, now, are you voting from, ne- from Tennessee? No, no, or- no. I, I'm in New York. Still in New York. Okay. Got Although it. like, truth be told, my, our vote doesn't matter technically. Like I know theoretically it, it's not right to say that, but it, it factually it, it doesn't, right? We know I, where our, our district is going to go. And I would say functionally it has little weight. But um, in in an election that is potentially contentious, uh, if you are on uh, the if you are on the Democratic side, yeah, you yeah. you almost need an overwhelming majority, um, both in the popular vote and in the electoral college, um, to kind of cement it and to not allow for any any nefarious forces to come in and, and yeah, steal it. Yeah, so, so in that way, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, you know, functionally doesn't matter from New York. We're going to, you know, it's going to, it's a blue state, but I think just across the country, it needs to be such an overwhelming number that there's, there's no, that there's little reason f- to, to try to overturn it or change it. Yeah, yeah. So in that, that way, I actually do think, you know, yeah, yeah it makes look, sense. It, if he can win by five million or six million or seven million, it's kind of hard, um, you know, to to argue that uh, maybe we shouldn't count these, you know, mail. I mean, granted, it's still going to come down to a couple states. Um, so when yeah, it comes yeah. down, to, like, down numbers, to Florida but, and Ohio and, and Pennsylvania and all that yeah. stuff, but um, so but, um, but uh, you know, in- interesting. What I, and I've always said this is that I actually, actually I, I should just correction actually when this goes up. It will be the day after the election. Oh, now we may or may not know the winner at that point, but no, uh, yeah, no. actually, because we're we're recording this on Wednesday, um, the Wednesday before, but this won't actually be published until the Wednesday mm-hmm. after. So, uh, so yeah, it's funny. So we'll know then, yeah. but uh, or maybe we won't. So we'll see. We probably will, probably won't. Um, no. You know, with the way the the amount of mail in ballots and and everything that's going to happen with it, um, yeah, we might not know for a little while. So um, I, I'm I'm not a fan of the electoral college. Yeah, no, me neither. Uh, I, I, I think it's it's an antiquated system, and for and for anyone outside of the United States that may not know, uh, the 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 United States has figured out the only vote in the history of votes that is not determined by the number of votes counted, but rather yeah. by the regions of voting. Yeah. And it's the only reason why is because when they first did the votes, they couldn't. They didn't have the technology to, to tally all the votes, yeah. so they uh, approximated it, right? And, you know, it was, it's just ridiculous, if you ask yeah. me. Well, it's also it's supposed to be a check on, like my my old, um, you know, t- one of my old history teachers say it's like kind of like the masses are asses. So like the electoral college is kind of like a check on the people, so that if the people do something stupid, that's like a, a, a last go between to to oh, as far as the electorate, a bad oh, decision, and, and not even that. That you're right because the electorates don't even have to vote for for who they who was voted for. Yeah, could go against it. Like so, it's it's ridiculous. 
That's not yeah, democracy. But, but the thing is, like, also regardless, like, a, a, it's not democratic. And, you know, one could argue that the most recent election was a situation which if we're going to have, like, like, who else can you elect um, and then not have them step in and, and make the, the right choice? So I think in that, in that way, you know, like, yeah, it, it, it's antiquated and it's, it's, you know, unfortunate, well, you know, what is it, like three of the last four, well, like, I'm not the last one, but we have, you know, the t- last two Republicans that have been in office have not won by, you know, or, or two of the last three times that a Republican yeah. has won an election, it's not won the popular vote. So there's yeah. you know, clearly a problem there. I, I don't know what's on the agenda. It should Democrats take over, but I, I would hope that there is a larger push um, to start to get rid of that because it just doesn't thing is, make sense. The other thing is, why can't people vote online? And, and I don't buy the whole, and I don't buy the whole, there's ways to rig it or hack it or not. It's like, come on, you have, uh, you, you have the, the best computer scientists, you have the, the best tech people and, and, and trillions of dollars at your disposal. Yeah. You can't figure out a way to vote online. It's just, it's ludicrous. It, you know, I'm, I'm, I actually think that powers that be want to control the vote more, right? Or make it so that it does, people make it harder for people to vote. So should be an option. It's just ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, I, I would be interested to see if there are any countries that currently do it. Um, I'm sure you're right. I think there has to be a way. I think, Come on. but I think implementing anything like that, it, it's got to be tested and, 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 you know, almost, almost a hundred percent secure. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I think that, I mean, just look at how much, um, misguided, you know, uh, fear there is over, um, corruption with vote by mail. Yeah. Uh, now imagine if you're doing that online. Maybe it eliminates. I think really maybe it makes it less. It, yeah. It makes- I mean, I, I'm. I'm. I'm saying it, it might. May whether or not it is. I think it'd be. It's a tough sell, to for people because we're so used to you know thing you know things maybe, online being but hackable. But, but issues that we've seen in the past yeah. that have often affected communities with lower incomes where yeah. people where people couldn't get to you know voting stations elderly people that yeah. might not be able to get to the you know the um you know voting areas like it it, it corrects some of those problems potentially so and, uh, and yeah. people could still vote live if they want yeah so, no i i yeah i i think it's just like maybe come on, we're 10 years away from that yeah. yeah right but let's, let's start 10 years in, away let's start implementing i think it'll it'll happen we have the eventually. technology very easily we have the security let's make it happen yeah no i would i would agree with that i just think um you know we're we're, we're about 10 years away from that that right? pro, you know enough. being implemented but i think i i would i would want to see if there are any states or i mean countries that currently do it and yeah. um you know how secure it is okay. and what the weaknesses are but anyway i we're a fitness po- podcast and not yes, a politics yes, one, not even a though politics. we definitely, but th- 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 this time of year, I mean, that's like all anyone can talk about is politics and, and COVID. So, um, so uh, I, yeah. I have a question for you. So yeah. where do you put uh, Khabib? Like if you had to compare him to like a, ba- a, fa- a basketball player, like who would, who would he be? Huh. Um, I'm trying to think. Okay, what's a what's a good ad? Well, so why, why don't you explain just explain Khabib in in two minutes or less to okay. listeners who don't know who Khabib is? So, okay, uh, while so, I think about what what athletic comparison I would make. <laughs> All right, so Khabib Nurmagomedov, uh, who uh, just retired from the UFC, is uh, most likely the greatest lightweight 
fighter and uh, whoever existed, right? He basically re he retired undefeated. He was a champion. He beat all comers, and um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So when when um, he retired, everyone was calling him the goat, which is certainly acceptable. Of course, John Jones, uh, who in my opinion will is you know will is, is the greatest. Uh, mixed martial artist and fighter to ever walk the planet. He's the guy that if like aliens came down and like, we're going to conquer you unless you send your greatest gladiator, he's <laughs> the person I would elect to, to fight, them in a, you know, fight someone in a cage. Yeah. Um, but uh, so of course, and, and, and he's a real ass. Like he couldn't just like with all his gifts, he couldn't just shut up about it. He has to cry. It's like, he's just such a, a not a good person. He's just not, yeah. he's not Zen. He's just not very cool for everything yeah. that he has. But um, so, but Khabib is definitely now up there, yeah, with the greatest to have ever participated yeah, well, okay. in the so, sport. So to answer, so so a couple things. So when you mentioned, so basically, yeah. So John Jones is is probably you know the greatest fighter we we've, we've seen, the greatest mixed martial artist um ever. Especially you combine the skills with his weight class, like he's the greatest. And he's going to move up to heavyweight. Um, he'll pro you know he's never really he he lost one fight but it was a disqualification type of loss like he he was destroying the person um, before you know he lost because of an illegal blow um, so and, and even like in that case like it was wasn't really the illegal blow the guy was already injured but um, regardless uh, you know I think you know the, with MMA in general whenever there's a new fighter or somebody comes out we're, we we talk about them as oh maybe that's the greatest ever and so that constantly happens where we have somebody who's like oh that person is you know is, is the best or the pound for pound the best and um, oh, recency bias yeah recency, like exactly. what everyone does yes, with yes, LeBron James bias. although LeBron exactly. James is definitely he's up there I mean I, I would probably there's definitely a strong, up in the top three yeah I think he is. argument can be made but but regardless and I don't love the whole eras thing because yeah. it's it's tough to compare eras but yeah but Sorry, okay so yeah so you know you're perfectly Re recency bias is what happens a lot with mma so i think what people were saying so what people were saying is that you know khabib has been dominant he's hasn't lost a fight in his career he's beaten some of the best in a, in a division that's just killers like that division lightweight um doesn't get the credit it deserves it's got the the best fighters you know in that division pound for pound generally so um people he wanted to be known as the pound for pound number one he's not even saying like i'm the greatest of all time i just want to be ranked pound for pound number one number one which to be fair to him, he should be because John Jones, while he's probably the greatest fighter we have ever seen and may ever see, um, in the last couple of years, he has not fought much. And his last fight, he arguably, you know, he's been underwhelming and then he arguably lost his last fight. So where Khabib's just been dominant through and through yeah, for yeah. the last few years. So, so I think, you know, it's not unfair to say, yeah, maybe he should be, you know, you could give him pound for pound title. And then Jones got upset about that. And, you know, so there's a whole thing about him being upset about Khabib wanting to be pound for pound, but you know, yeah, it's like, don't worry, just go fight, fight some more and prove it. Go, you go to heavyweight, go to heavyweight, win your fights. And no one's going to argue with you over that. But okay. My, my comparison, I'm going to say Barry Sanders. Barry because, Sanders. Yeah. So think okay. about it. Okay. No, obviously Barry Sanders never won any titles, but MMA is not a, you know, not a team sport, but Barry Sanders was, you know, the best at what he did at that time in his position, one of the best all time. Like if you're going to okay. look at, you know, we're your best running backs of all time. He's in everybody's top five. And he, he stopped at the absolute peak of his own performance. Like he was, so he's the best at what he does. Um, best at his position, arguably one of the, you know, top, you know, of all time and just kind of hung him up, 
you know, at the, at his, at his personal peak. And I'd say that's kind of similar to a Khabib. Obviously again, MMA is not, a, it's not a team sport. So it's kind of you, hard to argue with titles. Cause then if you're with championships, I got to yeah, think, okay, yeah. well, who's who in what sport like retired after winning a championship, but still at a high level. So maybe that's probably the, the, the comparison that kind of came to mind for me as far as like athletes that, you know, if you want to compare to a different sport, but yeah. All right. Well, so uh, we'll get on to like, let's get on to fitness stuff, I guess. Um, you know, our, our politics and MMA sidebars. Um, so today I did an interview, um, actually did an interview with uh, Dr. Greg Hammer, which is really interesting um, array of topics, but the focus, um, which is kind of his focus is kind of avoiding burnout and especially dealing with, uh, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and people either being overworked or underworked or stressed and not, you know, there, there's a lot going on. And so he shares some really interesting tips on how to avoid burnout. And um, yeah, really, really like his philosophy. We had a really great chat. So without further ado, um, here is my interview with Dr. Greg Hammer. Everyone, we're here with Dr. Greg Hammer. He's a professor at Stanford University, a best-selling author, physician, and mindfulness expert. Uh, Dr. Hammer, how are you? I'm very well, Ryan. Great to be with you. Great to have you on the podcast. Um, there's a lot of uh, exciting stuff to talk about. Um, so before we get into the meat of our discussion, we always like to ask our guests, our guests, kind of a bit about their own fitness background. So maybe if you can tell us and our listeners a little bit about your own fitness background. What you, you know, did you play any sports? Um, what do you currently do to kind of keep yourself fit? Sure. Well, I've kind of been a lifelong fitness enthusiast, uh, starting with uh, the interest of my my parents. They were avid fitness people, uh, very active tennis players, and uh, just overall uh, exercise enthusiasts. So I played competitive sports when I was young. Uh, I, I played ice hockey. I played tennis. Uh, always kept myself in good shape, even through a busy undergraduate program and medical school. And uh, at the moment, and I would say since I've been here at Stanford, which has been for 25 years, I've been an avid cyclist. I have a home gym, which is uh, wonderful, especially during COVID. Yeah. So I, I work out either in my gym or take my bike out cycling most every day. And uh, certainly physical fitness is part of my overall wellness program. And I've been, been a wellness junkie my whole life, I would say. And that includes uh, sleep, exercise, and nutrition, which I think are really the, the, the bases of our overall fitness, which includes our, our spiritual fitness as well. Awesome. So um, now can you give us a little bit of back, a little bit about your kind of professional backgrounds kind of what takes you to the point where you're where you're you know writing a book um, and you know specifically kind of focusing on on that and on trying to keep people um, I guess healthy, especially through what we're, what we're kind of going through right now. Yes, uh, I would say that uh, first of all, I've been a, a a long time seeker of the truth, if you will, and and have been a long time meditator. And about ten years ago, I started having an epiphany, which was that there's really nothing to look for. It's really within us. Happiness is our true nature, and our experience as we develop from uh, being a newborn, infant, toddler, school-age child, adolescent to adult, really sort of veils our, our happiness due to a variety of uh, uh, constraints that help program our minds to have a negativity bias, to have an obsession with the past and the future, which 
maybe maladaptive. So I started just realizing that all we need to do is be present in order to be happy and happiness is really our true nature. And then we uh, started a program at Stanford called WellMD and I jumped on board with that shortly after its inception about five years ago. And so I've been very active in in wellness for physicians because burnout has been a growing problem in the medical profession, not just physicians, but nurses and, and other healthcare professionals as well. So my interest in, in burnout and wellness in the medical field, uh, I started uh, giving lectures on wellness and, and burnout, what are its drivers, what are its cures, if you will, and uh, that sort of took on a life of its own. Then I had some sabbatical time, and uh, I wasn't going to leave Stanford. I have a lab. I need to feed and water, and uh, I love being here. So I had to decide what to do, and, and the lectures were really resonating with audiences, and so I just decided to write a book on wellness for healthcare professionals, and, and that kind of got the gain without pain concept in motion. And so that book, uh, Game Without Pain, The Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals is on Amazon. And there's a second one at the publisher, which is sort of a pocketbook version, Game Without Pain, Your Happiness Handbook. And, uh, you know, I've been very involved in lots of uh, radio, television interviews, podcasts such as yours, Ryan, and all of that has sort of reinforced that I'm doing the right thing. I'm uh, very enthusiastic about spreading the message of wellness. Well, that's a, a lot to unpack, and there's a bunch of great stuff that I, I want to get into. So um, let's start off um, kind of with the idea of uh, burnout. So what do you mean by burnout? Burnout, Ryan, I think can be most simply defined as emotional and physical exhaustion that comes from stress. Mm -hmm. and the stress can be internal, external, if, if there is really a distinction. So burnout in medicine... Uh, I think the drivers are threefold. There are really three domains that drive burnout and also point in the direction of its remedy. And they are, first of all, the culture of medicine, and this is true in other workplaces and, and in the home as well, but the culture of medicine traditionally has been that we in the healthcare field take care of our patients at all costs to ourselves. The patient always comes first. We often put our own wellness burner and eventually that's really unsustainable we need to take care of ourselves first and then we'll be better equipped to take care of patients but that's been our culture and also the culture has been such that we are uh, not really encouraged to seek psychological help for ourselves which uh, you know given the circumstances of our, our jobs and the life and death decisions that we make on a daily basis we, we, we do need support at times. And so the culture is, has not really provided uh, uh, ready access to that without stig stigmatization. The second area of, uh, where drivers exist is in the area of efficiency of practice. And we, like others, have endured greater pressure to see more patients every hour, uh, to be subjected to quality metrics. And so we're given the charge of of seeing more, doing more, but we're not necessarily given the infrastructure to do that. And so, for example, we're asked to see more patients every hour in our clinics, but we're not given more exam rooms, more technical support, 
And so our patients just end up stacking up in the waiting area. And of course, they're very unhappy about that. And, and they may give us bad reviews on our Press-Ganey scores, for example. And then the administrators tell us our Press-Ganey scores are going down. But that's because they haven't given us the tools to accomplish what they've demanded that we accomplish. So that's sort of efficiency. And the third domain is personal resilience. And this is really my primary area of interest. I think that it's really our leadership that is responsible for establishing the culture and practice efficiency, but it's our individual responsibility to learn how to be more resilient and, and happy in our professional and private lives. So I actually have a couple of questions. Um, can you hear me? Yes, okay. I can. Okay, cool. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. I had it, I had it muted. Um, sorry. So I got a, a couple of questions um, based on on that. So first off, um, I guess when it, so so obviously what you're mentioning a lot deals with healthcare professionals, um, but do you find that 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 kind of philosophy also applies itself to just the average person? So just in general, I think we you know there that that those ideas can find themselves into the workplace um, where people seem to be kind of overworked and and not necessarily doing something that they, they love to do and the, the focus is all on efficiency and not as much on quality of life. And I guess the second question is then as it relates to healthcare workers, how has um, COVID kind of amplified um, what was already an issue? Sure. Well, yes, I think the, uh, the elements of burnout, the drivers of burnout exist in most walks of life actually. So, you know, the culture in our society has been such that people are stigmatized for seeking psychological counseling, for example. Um, I think that's changing, but I think that does exist in the workplace and outside of the workplace for many people. And and the culture is always, in, in, in our society at least, is, is work harder and harder and harder and try to accomplish more and more and get to the top. It's a, it's a fairly materialistic ethic, if you will. Um, and also with regard to efficiency, yes, sure. It's actually quite interesting what's happening during the pandemic is that many people are working from home. And although that presents challenges, it also presents efficiencies. And I think that may end up enduring. In other words, there, there are sort of new normal elements to what's going on with regard to the efficiency of our, our working life. So yes, I think these apply to everyone and certainly issues related to personal resilience. Stress is just inexorably part of life and everybody experiences stress. And you know, we can talk about acute versus chronic stress and what is adaptive, what is maladaptive. But yes, I do think, Ryan, these three elements apply to most of us in our working lives and to some extent in our home lives as well. Mm. And then, so in the healthcare community, how has uh, how has COVID made has it be, has it become worse um, with COVID? Um, what have you noticed? Like, what changes have you noticed um, as as far as this is concerned when it comes to dealing with the pandemic and and how it is in in kind of in hospitals and in healthcare facilities and just amongst um, healthcare work professionals? Great question. There's really a lot of variability in how COVID has affected uh, healthcare professionals in the hotbed areas of COVID which started out really in Manhattan and surrounding areas, for example, of course, the healthcare system was overwhelmed. So that presented a unique type of stress that I think none of us had ever experienced before. 
Um, but however, in other areas of the country, things were quite different. We canceled elective surgeries. So that actually caused uh, a, a slowdown in, mm. in work life for many people who were involved in perioperative services. The, the operating room schedule was greatly reduced and uh, in many areas people were underemployed. And then in terms of clinic practice, uh, we had to shift to doing a lot of clinic visits online. And so that presented its own set of problems. And again, that may become part of the new normal, as, yeah. as we've discovered in many cases, it's perfectly efficient and productive to see patients online. Yeah. But I would say that COVID has created a whole panoply of, of circumstances and, and a variety of challenges. They're not all related to being overwhelmed with COVID-stricken patients in the hospital, yeah. although that has certainly uh, caused some challenges in many areas. But but in in many other areas, it's it's been quite different, where things have been slowed down and healthcare workers have been laid off. Actually, so yeah. and then I think all of us in the healthcare profession and and outside of the healthcare profession are experiencing stress related to COVID. We, yeah. we, our minds want to go ahead to the future and we tend to catastrophize and think of the worst possible scenarios, even though those scenarios will, will generally never come to pass. But that creates a lot of fear and anxiety in all of us. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I've, I've noticed myself, there's the, just all, there, since it started, um, I, there's just been a generalized kind of underlying anxiety that's just always there. And it's like, you know, and I can imagine, um, you know, from my situation's not terrible and I had a you know decent work situation. So uh, it's uh, it's been manageable, but I, I can't imagine what it's like for other people who maybe don't have, you know, as much stability and not that I have all the, you know, that much stability. But, uh, you know, there just is this kind of generalized anxiety there has like kind of has mental health changed um since the pandemic has there been a noticeable change in, in in the average person or just generally um as far as mental health is concerned i think there absolutely has ryan uh, as you suggested there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world so there's a certain global background resonance of pain and suffering and fear and anxiety and and of course there are many elements to that we all feel for those who are out of work who are really having trouble making ends meet. We all feel the pain of uh, those in the service industry who have had to shut down. And I don't know how many uh, restaurants have, have shuttered their doors probably for good. And there's so many other difficulties, having kids at home with online learning. Um, maybe there's a child with attention deficit disorder. It's just impossible and very stressful for families. So I think we all kind of have this shared anxiety and and background of pain and suffering, um, not necessarily unique to our own particular circumstances. And then, of course, there are those of us who are really suffering, who have lost a loved one to COVID and um, who may be out of work, who uh, may not know how they're going to put food on the table next week. So, yes, I mean, this is a global situation and and i'm like you perhaps uh i feel very fortunate that i'm uh not so heavily afflicted as many others but nevertheless there's just a feeling of 
just anxiety yeah. and, and shared pain and suffering for for all of us. Yeah. So I guess so. Let's get into your book. We got a little bit more into your book. I know you mentioned uh, you talked about it. So I, I like the title. So my um, my co-host uh, Justin and I we always talk about kind of the the myth of um, no pain, no gain, um, in in the fitness world. You know, and that and that the idea. You know that that uh, you know you you know that that it's said a lot. You know, like you always have to feel pain, and yes, pain is a part of it. But I think sometimes it's it's overused. But I'm just interested in in um why. What made you choose the the wording of gain without pain, um, you know, as as part of the title of your book? <laughs> well, that's a question, Ryan. I would say that it's sort of a, a several several issues uh, led to that. First of all, I'm an anesthesiologist and intensive care physician, okay. so uh, I try to mitigate or preclude pain or certainly treat it uh, aggressively. Um, so, sort of a no pain area of medicine, I suppose, at least uh, that's the goal. And then also, I, I think that in life, things don't have to be painful. I mean, we, yeah. we can make progress spiritually, physically, and otherwise, without suffering pain, per se, as part of our regimen. Um, I think even with regard to working out, especially when you get to be a little bit older, uh, you want to exercise to fatigue, but if yeah. not to pain. If you're feeling yeah. pain in a joint or in a muscle, it's time to back off a little bit. So, uh, and then I thought of an acronym for the the essentials of resilience and happiness that I embrace and wanted to come up with something simple that people could remember. And so GAIN just kind of appeared one day and yeah. GAIN is an acronym for gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. And I think those are the four pillars of resilience and happiness. And so all those factors kind of came together and uh, I had a bit of fun with it and yeah. ended up with a game without pain title. Yeah, no, it's great. Great when something works out like that. So maybe um, what can you walk us through, uh, I guess, two parts of the question is one is. And you talked about it a little bit earlier, but really why happiness, um, why you find that to be so fundamental? I guess is number one, and then and then how those four principles um, will lead you to that. Like, how do you use those four principles to to get to that point of happiness? Sure. Well, I think happiness is all that uh, all seven billion of us on the planet want. If you really kind of drill down, we may want certain accomplishments or material possessions and so on, but really what we want is happiness, and we sometimes substitute objects or substances or uh, relationships to try to get what we want but really at the at the at the root of what we truly <laughs> desire is simply happiness and uh, the good news is that happiness is our our true nature it's already within us the challenging news is that it's veiled by our experience and as we develop uh, from a newborn we acquire two fundamental ways of thinking. So the newborn is, we, we, we believe, just purely present and not concerned about the past or the future. They're not, a newborn is not presumably concerned about what happened 15 minutes ago when they were in their mother's womb or what's gonna happen tomorrow, where their next meal is gonna come from. They're just present. And I think if we all go back to that kind of mind of a newborn, mind of a beginner, and 
consider just being present. That's when we're happy. If you think of all your happiest times, you are right there right then. So if you're walking through a forest and you're you know, on a nice hike, you're getting a, getting a good workout, you're surrounded by beautiful trees and, and just that wonderful fresh air and a little bit of a breeze and sunlight shimmering through the leaves, you're not at that moment worried about the past or the future. You're, it's something that brings you to the present moment. Similarly, with a very moving piece of music. So for me, that might be, you know, a piece by Mozart, centuries old, yet still bringing me to the present moment with its beauty. And, and I drop any kind of obsession with the past or the future. And, you know, having an intimate experience with a loved one, you can go on, but those times when you're really happy, if you think about it, you're just totally right there in the moment. So why is it that we don't have more of that? And, and it is that as we develop, we acquire patterns of thinking, and these are kind of ex explainable from a teleologic or developmental standpoint. We have to wean from our mom's breast and, and develop a sense of being a separate self, and this is mine, that's not mine, this is me, that's not me. And we have to learn from our mistakes, which puts us in the past, and we have to start to plan for the future. and and we overdo it, it turns out. You know, we become obsessed with the past and the future in ways that are maladaptive and we forget how to be present. And so how can we get back to being present and and endure and, and overcome these two qualities we obtain, which are uh, a negativity bias. We tend to remember negative things and forget about positive things. And secondly, we get obsessed with the past and the future in maladaptive ways. So. What does that mean? We're obsessed with the past beyond what's adaptive. What's adaptive about the past is learning from our mistakes and savoring our wonderful memories, for example. But beyond that, obsession with the past brings feelings of fear and regret and shame. And likewise with the future, it's adaptive to plan for fun times ahead and, and also make plans to put food on the table. But beyond that, our obsession with the future leads to fear and anxiety. We, the negativity bias in combination with this obsession causes us to catastrophize, to imagine the worst possible case, even though that rarely comes to be. So we need to remember our true nature and being present and therefore resilient and happy. And, and that's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is really a practice that allows us through our breath initially and, and through contemplation of, I think, gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment will bring us into the present moment. And that's really what we need to practice, just like working out as we develop, you know, if we want to run a marathon and we're not a runner, we have to start slow with baby steps and practice every day or, or according to a set schedule and eventually we'll get there. And it's the same with practicing the skills of being present. And, and that's what the gain principles, I think, are laid out to uh, help us with. There's a, it makes me think there's a great um, Neil deGrasse Tyson quote um, that you know we're 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 all prisoner. I'm gonna butch might butcher it, but effectively like we're all prisoners of the present, um, in perpetual transition from an inaccessible past to an unknowable future. And, and and I think it 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 is it's a great quote because it is so true that we are we're always in the present. Um, and I you know it and it tends to line up well with my own kind of personal philosophy. Um. 
you know, of, you know, trying to find things that, that you know, I, I call it satisfaction, but I think it's, it's effectively the same thing. And it's, you know, being in, you know, it is having experiences that that make you feel fulfilled. And I think we are stuck in a kind of very materialistic society. And and we are so kind of not it tends to be not focused on the right things. And you're correct, like in that, you know, people are so you know very much focused on, on what, you know, what happened in the past and, and uh, what's going to happen. But how, you know, I guess, how do we affect change in society? Like, how do you I, I mean, and part of the process is like writing a book and and talking to people and hoping you know that people hear your message. But like, how do you kind of shift that mindset? Because we do seem to be stuck in a society that is very much kind of the you know antithesis to the to that to to those ideas. I would say uh, just go back to first principles, and and that's where the the gain principles come into play. So let's consider them. Gratitude. You know, you can be deaf and happy, you can be blind and happy, you can be very poor and happy, but you will never see a person who's happy and ungrateful. Mm-hmm. So gratitude is really one of the uh, founding principles of happiness and being present. Even with the pandemic, you know, many people are suffering, but imagine what it was like a hundred years ago in 1918 with the great influenza pandemic. It was so much more difficult than uh, 50 million people, give or take, perished. Uh, access to, to good food, clean water, medical care were so limited. We did not have the ability, of course, to stay in touch with friends and loved ones uh, virtually through the internet as you and I are doing right now. So people were very isolated. Uh, it was just a horrific time. And, and if you fast forward to the present, even though things are difficult and there's a lot of pain and suffering going on, as we discussed, things are so much better than they than they were 100 years ago. And so we need to focus on that for which we're grateful and and things we have rather than things we don't have. And when we do that, we we can feel grateful and and that frees us from these obsessions with the past and future and helps us kind of come into focus in the present moment. Great. Um, so now you also talk in your book about sleep, um, and you know obviously that's an area that that many people struggle with. But uh, maybe if you can talk to us a little bit about your, you know, how that affects us and what people can do to kind of to 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 take advantage of it and and or at least not allow sleep to kind of affect our lives negatively. Sure. Well, you know, many of us have problems with sleep. Um, even under the best of circumstances, but certainly in in the the current pandemic, this sort of background vibration of fear and anxiety that many of us have interferes with our sleep. And in addition, working at home when our schedules are so disrupted, uh, you know, that causes uh, impairment of our sleep also because we really need to be on a schedule in order to sleep well. And so the, you know, there are fundamentals of sleep hygiene that are, that are well described. One of them is having a regular bedtime. So even though people may not be going to work and they can sleep in if they want and so on, I think it's really important to have a regular bedtime, to have a regular schedule in general with regard to, to meals, uh, recreation, exercise, work, and sleep. Uh, Other elements of sleep hygiene, caffeine. You know, caffeine has a very long half-life. So if we have two cups of coffee at eight o'clock in the morning, 
that's equivalent to having one cup of coffee six or eight hours later, so in the early afternoon. And then 50% of the caffeine that is in our body then is still present in the morning. And so we really have to watch our caffeine intake um, and reduce it. And I used to say, well, I'm not going to have a cup of coffee after two o'clock, but that one o'clock cup of coffee, uh, you know, half of that was still with me at nine o'clock in the evening. And, and no wonder I had difficulty sleeping. Now, some people can have a cup of coffee and go right to sleep, but that's that's not me. Yeah. I think that's not most people. So caffeine, alcohol is another thing. You know, alcohol, people think it helps them fall asleep. And I would I would just say that it's not sleep. It's a drug induced state of unconsciousness, which in the medical term for that is actually hypnosis. We're in a hypnotic state, which is not what most people think about when they think of hypnosis, but alcohol and and sleep medications, whether it's an over-the-counter medication like Benadryl, uh, which is in a lot of sleep preparations over-the-counter, or whether it's prescription sleep medicine, those chemicals interfere with normal restorative sleep. And so we are best uh, counseled to avoid those. So caffeine, alcohol, Sleep medications, although they may be useful on occasion, should not be uh, a regular habit. Um, you know, what is it that we do when we're on or in our bed? We really should limit our bed for uh, two activities, and uh, neither of them are being on our computer, watching television, or even reading a book. Though I have to confess, I do tend to lie in my bed reading reading a book in the evening, but. So our bed is really for sleep, and and so we need to associate it properly. So there are a number of elements of good sleep hygiene that are that are well described, and and those are some of the common ones. And I think, uh, especially in the pandemic, the first principle is really having a regular sleep schedule. Yeah, you just gave me the perfect excuse because like my for whatever reason, like we have a TV in the bedroom, a TV in the living room, and my wife always likes to lie in bed and watch TV in the bedroom. And I, for whatever reason, like to just sit on the couch and watch in the living room. So I'll use that excuse that uh, when I want to, if she, that, that it's not good for our sleep to watch TV in the bedroom anymore. Yeah. So hopefully that'll get me Got out it. of that. <laughs> well, this is, it, it was great talking to you. So can you share some, just share the name of the book and information and how our listeners can get in touch with you or find out more about you? Because um, yeah, definitely I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to check in with you. Sure. My website, Ryan, is greghammermd.com, so lowercase g-r-e-g-h-a-m-m-e-r-m-d.com. That has uh, links to lots of media, interviews, uh, videos, other messaging, and also a link to uh, where they can find the book, which is on Amazon. And uh, there's another book in the works at the publisher, which will be sort of a pocketbook version for everybody where the stories that I tell in the book are not are not generally related to medicine and that one will be called gain without pain your happiness handbook so people can learn about the the other elements of gain the acceptance intention non-judgment we didn't discuss this morning but um, yes greghammermd.com perfect so we will definitely have back on when you have the uh, when the new book comes out would love that Ryan awesome thanks a lot okay be well all right thanks you too okay bye bye all right, so that was a really great chat. Um, definitely anybody who is interested, check out his book, uh, Game Without Pain, uh, The Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. Um, all right, so Justin, uh, I got a study uh, for you today. So 
Uh, I'm sure this is a topic that we've talked about at some point. Um, have you ever thought about what happens if you only exercise one side, like just one arm and not the other? I have thought about that. Like we always had, had this joke, oh, yeah. it's gonna, you're going to have like one really large yeah. arm or like one really large leg or like, like, we, like we always thought about that. But I, I guess intuitively I always knew that it was just silly to do that. Yeah. And, but I, I, but maybe it doesn't really work like that. Like I you mean, can't just do dumb, like curls in one arm. Like I mean, well, so you've seen people who've come from surgery. Well, you know, if you have an injury where they're like there's severe atrophy, let's say. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yes, you can build one side stronger. But actually, so this study, um, so it comes out of Edith Cowan University, um, and it was looking at you know what happens when you do exercise one side and immobilize the other. So. Um, what they did was, so it was interesting. So, and, and the, the question here, it, there's actually a legitimate question. So we kind of joke about, you know, like, and we've seen it in like, you know, Rick and Morty and other, you know, yeah. other shows where like one person, you know, you build just one arm is just massive and the other side is puny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's a realistic application, which is like, let's sure. say if you have an injury, like yeah, what happens no, if you injure one side, um, and, you know, and you can't use the other side if you, you have surgery or you know, whatever it is, you know, that, that leaves or stroke that leaves one side immobile. What happens when you do, you know, you have a side that you can work, should you work it? Should you not, um, you know, are there benefits? So, um, what they did, so it was a study that took 30 people. Um, and they basically had one arm immobile for eight hours a day, and then they were divided into three groups. So group one did no exercise at all. So they didn't do any exercise at all. Group two did a mix of concentric and eccentric exercise. So concentric, um, you think of as, you know, always go to a bicep curl on a bicep curl, the concentric concentric part is when you curl. So when you flex your arm, when your the muscles are actively shortening. And then the eccentric portion would be when you're extending the arm back down. So um, there's the, sec the second group did a mix of concentric and eccentric exercise. And then a third group did eccentric only. So just to give a brief, brief little explanation between the concentric and eccentric. Um, eccentric training, um, so what's happening is you're lengthening the muscle with resistance. So one of the benefits with eccentric is you can use heavier weight because if you think about it, if I start at a curl and I have a heavy weight, I can control that weight down you know, to, to some extent easier than I can lift a really heavy weight, you know, because you're, you're still, there's an element of control. And so you can slow something down or decelerate something faster or, or more controlled than you can accelerate, you know, a similar weight. So um, there have been plenty of studies that show that eccentric training is really good for building muscle strength and muscle size. So um, just kind of a little sidebar with that. Um, but then, okay, so they had, so they had the three groups. So what they found was that the um, so the concentric only and the eccentric, or sorry, the eccentric only and the mixed groups both increase strength in both arms. So in, interestingly, both the arm uh, the working, but also the arm not working. Um, and the eccentric only group did did it significantly more. Additionally. The eccentric group led to so basically there's muscle muscle wastage, which is the how much atrophy happened over that period of time. So in the group that did no exercise, there was a 28% loss of muscle mass um, in during that time, where the eccentric only group only lost two percent muscle mass. So you know th th we don't know why 
Um, you know, why is it that the opposite side benefits? I'm sure there's some hmm. part of it is a neuromuscular benefit. And there's, some, you know, some cross wiring in the brain, but I, you know, but again, like that, that's something that, you know, we'll need more, you know, more to find out like what's the actual mechanism at play. But it, it's, it is interesting that, yeah. you know, it, the joke of working one side, you know, the, you know, only build one. Well, no, you may actually help the other side. So there is a benefit there. So for example, if, if somebody has an injury that requires, um, a limb to be immobile, you know, there may be benefits to prescribing an exercise program where you're using the other side. So, you know, if you, if you break your arm or if you're in a situation where you can't use your right arm for two months, um, then you, you know, it may be beneficial to specifically focus on working the left arm in order to help build strength, but also minimize um, the loss of muscle. Uh, I can even think of a client I had recently who had to get wrist surgery and, um, how this would help because basically that the the side that had surgery needed to be immobile and she could not use that side for months as far as exercise is concerned. So using the other side could potentially help, you know, again, strength, but also possibly decrease the wasting of muscle. That's interesting. So, so interesting. So, so something that we normally think of as a joke, um, you know, actually is, is pretty useful. I've read about that before. Why that would be like, what is going I mean, on in the brain? I don't know. So, cause, and then there's another thing is like, you know, this doesn't look at like motor control. So like another interesting thing will be to look at, like, let's say, yeah. for example, I, I'm, a, I'm right, I write right-handed, you know, I'm athletic, athletically left-handed, but like I write right-handed. So we'd say writing is precise. Um, I'm not very good at it, but you know, like say, let's say there's, you know, writing is a precise kind of fine motor skill. Um, if I do some, if I damage my right hand to the point that I can't write with the right hand, will writing with my left hand transfer over to to maintaining some of my writing technique with the right hand so you know that wasn't part of this study but that's another interesting thing is like can you keep if you if you're immobile can you maintain certain motor skills with the other side by training them so i you know i don't know the mechanism you know I, i know that there are certain things like you know just thinking about and this goes back to some of the motor skills but thinking about you know, a movement, let's say it's swinging a baseball bat, will fire the, you know, a lot of the, like it will fire a lot of the neurons that would be involved in actually doing it. So a lot of times like visual, that's why visualizing can help and why kind of thinking things through, like when you're going to sleep, if there's some move or something you're trying to work on, actually thinking it through can help you do the movement better. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's, it's connected to that, but we really don't know. And it's one of those things that, you know, we'll need more studies to figure out why it is that working one side, um, you know, doesn't, it helps the other. It could be that maybe when you're doing one side, you're also creating, you know, very small kind of micro contractions in the side that, that that's th- theoretically not working, that is, is helping to maintain, you know, maintain and or build um, strength. So yeah, I know there's a lot, a lot involved that, that will, you know, I'm sure more studies figured out, but again, it's it's an interesting thing for rehab and rehabilitation programs that might need might really necessitate like working the opposite side in order to build strength in the side that you can't move. Oh, that's interesting. Cool. So, right. um, well, what what is um what what are the last two things you've actually written with a with a pen besides signing your name or or <laughs> tallying up a tip on the check? Oh, last two things I've written. Or last one thing besides either signing your name or writing a tip on a check. <laughs> I, I can't think. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, I mean, besides like filling out a form, I can't think of the last time I... I was taking notes for something recently, but I, I forget what. Yeah. <laughs> it's I funny how, how it's become basically a, lo- just yeah, like a lost. lost skill. 
Like, I mean, it was never a skill of mine to begin with, so um, I'm okay with not not necessarily having it. Um, all right, so we have uh, an ask the trainer. So hold on, one. Oh wait, actually, all right. So let me. I'm gonna set. You know, I'll set up. Uh, set okay, this cool. Up. Yeah. Oh, give me permission. All right. All right. I'll have to edit that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we have an Ask the Trainer. So Justin, uh, why don't you share, ask me the question. I'll try to answer to the best of my ability. All right. So today's question comes from Shamir. Hey, Shamir. Thanks for writing in. Uh, and the question is, hey, guys, I have a question about heart rate. I'm struggling to get my heart rate up during aerobic work. I've been a regular weightlifter, but recently I've decided to include cardio in my program. I tried a few boot camps. I've tried running. I've tried um, high-intensity interval. And no matter what, my heart rate seems to max out at 120. My target heart rate is supposed to be in the 155 range. Any thoughts? Thanks for all the great work you guys are doing. And thanks you once again, Shamir, for writing in. And perhaps you are a cyborg. <laughs> I, I would, there, there's a few follow-up questions I would have there. I guess one is how are you measuring it? Um, ha, you know, two, have you tried alternative methods of measuring? Um, because the first thing you know, I, I would say is, uh, and then, well, the third question would be then, on on if you were to do your own kind of perceived exertion, so like RPEs is rate of perceived exertion, which is you know your kind of subjective interpretation of how hard you're working. Where do you think you are? So you know, let's just say for example that 155 is like you know an eight out of ten, um, just to make things nice and simple. Um, do you feel like you're getting to an eight out of ten? So if you feel like you're getting to an eight out of ten. I would think then the issue is with the, you know, method of, of measuring that there's something wrong with that. Maybe you're using an Apple watch. That's not, you know, and generally my Apple watch seems to be pretty accurate, but maybe you're using one that's not getting the right number or maybe using a heart rate monitor that's not working or, um, you know, whatever the method is you're using, it might be off if you feel like you're, you're working that hard. Um, if you don't feel like you're working that hard, so if you feel like no matter what you do, you're always at a six out of 10, yeah, you might be a cyborg or um, you, you're not working hard enough. So you might need to, you know, whatever you're doing, do things faster or try to work harder. Um, you know, it doesn't sound like that. Like it doesn't, you know, there wasn't a complaint that like in the, le in the email, it didn't say like, I'm not working, you know, I, I, it feels easy. You know, it's not, you're not writing like, yeah, I'm running up the empire state building and it feels like, like nothing, you know, just, it sounds like you're, you're working hard. The, just the number on the monitor is not, you know, correlating to the work rate. But again, I could be wrong. So um, again, the first question, the first thing to consider is alternative methods of measuring. See if, if, if they're, if it's accurate. Um, the second part is, do you feel like you're working that hard? Um, and then third part is, you know, look, if you feel like you're working really hard and you're only hitting 120, um, uh, you know, then that becomes a little tricky. So, so the things you might need to do, you know, it, it might be then, you know, that part might be your own kind of tolerance for, you know, the, the 
activity is, is a little bit lower. So maybe it's like when you get to 120 or, or what, you know, that, that's really hard for you and you just have a hard time pushing past that. In which case, again, there are other factors. So depending on your age and your health history, you know, there are a lot of variables there. So it's hard to say, you know, what, where the block is. Um, you know, like for example, like if I'm work training somebody who's 20 years old, and they get to 120 and they're just, they're struggling and having a really hard time, um, you know, the, or, the, or they, the perceived exertion is really high at like a 120 heart rate. Um, you know, if they're a person that's new to exercise, then okay, we just, we work on that and we just try to push that over time. So you might just try to push to 122 and push to 124, 125. Um, if it persists, you know, I would suggest maybe just going to see a doctor to see if there is any issue there because that is fairly a fairly low number to be stuck at. So, you know, that is a situation where you might want to get it checked out. But again, if, if, if the person is, you know, 65, you know, then, then there's different calculus involved. So 120, that might just be, you know, the number that we're, we're trying to work with and maybe, you know, we stay around there. So there are a few questions involved, um, unfortunately, before, before saying, you know, for sure, like what, you know, what I would do. But like I said, you know, check, check to see them what what you're using um you know think about your perceived exertion um and again if that if you're just if, if everything is checked like you're 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 just having a hard time at 120 again just slowly try to build up um and if you just if reaching a sticking point you can't get past might be worth see, seeking a professional out and see if there's you know something you know something some underlying condition that that is is keeping you at that number all right well Thanks again for the question. And, uh, you know, as usual, shoot us an email at thegymwits at gmail.com. We'll, we try to answer all the questions that we get. Um, so, Justin, I guess that is it. Um, anything else to add for today? Oh, I think that's it. Cool. All right. Well, uh, as usual, check us out at thegymwits.com. Um, check us out on social media. Uh, again, we're try- trying, to, trying to keep this going um, more consistently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from this point forward. Hopefully, from this well, no, no, from, from last week forward. Hopefully, this will be two weeks in a row <laughs> that we've published. Um, and that is it. I'm Ryan George. I'm Justin Guild, a.k.a. Chef Sonic, reminding you that truth does not sell. And we are the Gymwits. <laughs>